You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We're in Luke chapter 16, and this, at least for the time being, finishes our study in the parables. This is our our last week. You know, I've been doing this... uh, in a variety of class settings for the last several months, both, you know, beginning in, in the summer. And uh, so this doesn't have a great finale to it, but this is a wonderful uh, parable, parable of the rich man and Lazarus to end this discussion. On. Let me begin with prayer. Lord God, with your word again open and In gratitude for the worship we have just come from, most of us, we thank you, Lord, for uh, the blessing today of the encouragement to to listen, to look into your face, and to do so within the company of believers. We are thankful for that. Help us now as we consider this parable. We pray for wisdom and understanding in the Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Father, and in the name of the Son. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you're the Ikea crowd or not. I expect that some of you aren't. But not too long ago, I I needed an added bookshelf in my study. So we went to Atlanta, our first and only trip to Ikea there. Um, Picked up a bookshelf, which comes, you know, in just a long box. Got it home and uh, pulled out all the hardware and the wood. And you know, I'd be totally at loss without pictures. I needed those uh, those eight by eleven sheet of showing me the the hardware, showing me the pieces, and even with that, it's a struggle. But I had the the picture before me. Uh, we do need pictures. We need to be able to visualize, kind of see what we're doing. And to me, that's, that's what the parables are. Uh, to avoid a communicational impasse at a critical point in Jesus' ministry where the religious leaders are pretty fierce and even his own family can't understand, Jesus switches into parables. He tells stories. And in the telling of the stories, he kept the crowd with him because they were kind of entertained by the speech act itself and all that goes with that. And he instructed and explained to the disciples who saw the need to see on a deeper level what he was describing in the picture. You wouldn't start to do a jigsaw puzzle without the box cover unless you're really, really smart. I need the box cover, and I'm looking at that all the time. I'm looking for pieces. Well, the parables are something of the box cover. You see your way through to the meaning that Jesus has in mind. Now, it's also interesting in light of this particular parable, because sometimes the context for the interpretation of the parable comes after the picture. So you get the picture, and then you get the explanation, the exposition. 
In this particular case, you get the exposition or the context before you get the picture. Uh, and I, I think it's somewhat, uh, as a teacher of the word, I think it's kind of important that you do, you are faithful to the order. So if Jesus gave the picture and then gives the explanation, that's how we do it. But if the context is essential to the explanation, then give that up front and then give the picture. So, and I don't have that recorded. I don't have that on your sheet. So I'm, you've got to trust me here that I'm reading from God's word as the preface to uh, what is on your sheet. But Jesus has just finished. We talked about last week the parable of the shrewd manager. And we finished up with these words. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Literally, they were curling up their upper lip. You can tell the body language is such. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Now, that could be a crazy line if uh, you blew it out of proportion, but in the light of what Jesus is being critical of, what people highly value, worldly values, money, certain types of power and esteem, what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Well, what we do know is that he's zeroing in on the Pharisees. And what we do know is that the particular aspect of the Pharisees that he's zeroing in on is wealth and money and the prestige that comes with that, apparently. And thirdly, he develops it further in verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money and this conflict of value, verse 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. Now, I think I prefer a different translation of that phrase. Uh, if you render it in the passive voice, then it is, the kingdom of God is being preached, and it is compelling you into the kingdom of God. It can be interpreted that way that the person isn't forcing their way, but the message is compelling you. And oh, just reading this morning, several commentators uh, value that particular interpretation, uh, that the compelling message of the gospel is being delivered. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife, now, all of a sudden, the, the seventh commandment is thrown in here. Um, and in the light of the parable that we're going to look at, you're, you'd wonder why it's not the tenth commandment, the commandment against coveting, but the seventh commandment. Anyone who divorces his wife, marries another woman, commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Jesus' point Fidelity and integrity to the law of God is part and parcel of receiving the good news of the kingdom. And he picks out one commandment to illustrate that. 
and then he tells a story. So you get this context here. This will be important for our understanding of the parable. Now, let me read it through with commentary and then come back to my numbers. My purpose for the outline is not to confuse you, uh, nor is it to kind of limit the freedom in which I can present the material. Verse 19, and I'll make comments as we go. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Now, that's a problem. We're supposed to read that, hear that, and understand it's a problem. Uh, as Luther will say, Abraham was rich. Job was rich. But when their wealth is referred to, it is done in a context of their fidelity to God. This richness is described in relationship to a kind of totally absorbing phenomenon of their wealth. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple, and you know, I, we could go on and describe how purple dye was a very expensive luxury product. It was harvested from, and it took thousands of particular snails, gutting the snail for a purple element that was in the intestines and that that was collected from thousands in order to dye something purple. So this guy is really wealthy and it is uh, ostentatious wealth. The fine linen, which is one commentator said, the fine linen was as expensive as pure gold. Uh, lived in luxury every day, no reference to the Sabbath. The everyday there would have been picked up by uh, the Jewish audience. Seven days a week. At his gate was laid a beggar. Laid a beggar. He didn't even get there on his own. He was uh, positioned there by others named Lazarus. Uh, some people debate, is this a parable? Because there is no other specific name given in any of the other parables. Only here is a character in the parable named. But I think all you need to know about Lazarus in terms of his life is his name. Because Lazarus is from Eleazar, remember the servant of Abraham in Genesis. And Eleazar means God is my help. And that's it. I think we're supposed to pick up from that name that Lazarus is defined by the grace of God, by the help of God. He's covered with sores. Uh, the rich man's covered with purple and fine linen, and this poor beggar, this Lazarus, is covered with sores, and he's longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. Wow, it's really kind of interesting, the discussion about the dogs and licking the sores, because there are some commentators, ancient and modern, that speak of this as medicinal, that it was actually a soothing comfort. I'll tell you, I don't, given the scavenger type dogs that you see in uh, certain countries, developing countries, uh, I would not see this as a plus. I would see this as a uh, very difficult thing to experience. Uh, 
The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. There's a dreamlike feel to this parable. Uh, there, it's a heightened sense of story. I do not think that this is a parable that teaches us uh, about the reality of heaven and hell. And does not, it's not intended for us to somehow draw significance from what people in heaven are going to be aware of on earth. I don't think that's Jesus' point. The beggar dies and angels carry him to Abraham's side which in the imagination of any Jew would be the most privileged position one could have. And the rich man also died, but he's buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away and, and Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. I don't think it's supposed to be understood literally. But what's unique about the rich man's response to Father Abraham? He still is in the commanding mode. Tell Abraham, tell Lazarus. He still is not recognizing Lazarus as a unique individual to whom he can speak. But Abraham replied, son, and it's an endearing word, son here. Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. Again, uh, some of the early church fathers like uh, Chrysostom who preached seven sermons on this parable. We have all seven. Uh, four of them were in a series. Uh, if you think that we have a tendency to belabor some things, you ought to have lived back then. Uh, but Chrys Chrysostom's point is that what you experience on this side of eternity is a reflection of your relationship with God. I don't necessarily think that that's what's being taught here. That uh, because you get all your good things on this side of eternity, then you can expect hell. Uh, if you receive all these bad things on this side of eternity, God is fashioning you into a more righteous person. I don't think that's the, the point here. Uh, nor do I think in verse 26, and besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. What I do think you can conclude from that is that there is life is decided on this side of eternity. And once we die, the consequences of those decisions are everlasting. I do think that's what Jesus is saying by this and giving us a picture of it. In verse 27, he answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. Again, send is an operative word here of command. Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Uh, let us let him warn them so that they will not also come to his place of torment. And this is interesting. Ken Bailey, who's uh, 
spent 30, 40 years in the Middle East and has written a number of books on Middle Eastern customs, he brings out the fact five brothers plus the one wealthy rich guy makes six. And if they had been open to Lazarus around the table, there would have been seven. Uh, the perfect number. Lazarus would have made the perfect community for them. Instead, the rich man, obviously aware of Lazarus at the gate, but always ignoring him. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. And that is a key kind of expression. Uh, remember, this is from Luke. Remember on the road to Emmaus, Jesus meeting up with those two disciples. And remember, he started in the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms to explain how all of them referred to Christ. So it's kind of a code term here that Luke is using, that Jesus used, uh, to speak of the fact that the Old Testament revelation as a pointer to Christ was all sufficient. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, no, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Well, number one on your sheet there, a follow-up story to illustrate the chasm between what people highly value and what God finds detestable. And that shouldn't be Luke 15, that should be Luke 16, 15. So if you can correct that, my conscience will feel better. Uh, and if you work down to number two, number two, we need not dwell on the worldly ways he was rich. We may be tempted to expand the notion of riches to include intellectual riches or relational capital or creative gifts, but Jesus leaves the definition of riches in dollars and cents. Sometimes we're uncomfortable with the clarity of Jesus's uh, constant referencing to wealth and to money. And you know of the four Gospels, Luke is the one that majors on that. Um, he really, Jesus, in, as recorded in Luke, has a lot to say about money interfering with our relationship with God. And this particular parable would emphasize that. Number three, Martin Luther, in his sermon on the parable, felt that the warning of the rich man's judgment was directed at Pharisees. But as he says, and this quote is, is good, Unfortunately, as we know, such people most often think of themselves pious and without greed. So the person most vulnerable, Luther is suggesting, to the charge of greed and consciousness of wealth are exactly those religious types, those experts in the law. Vice has been turned to virtue. Greed nowadays has come to be viewed as talented, smart, careful stewardship. Luther's really interesting here. What he's saying is, is fairly cutting. He's suggesting that uh, we have a set of respectable sins that 
we've kind of flipped it. Instead of what people value highly being detestable in God's sight, we value highly those things that are detestable in God's sight. So the winner, the wealthy person who's powerful, we no longer care about how they become, became wealthy and powerful. The fact that they're a success makes them important in our eyes. Now, should I remain implicit? Or should I go explicit? Some of the most powerful people in our country are praised by evangelicals who gained their wealth and power through fraud and evil. And yet they have not put a dent in their reputation. This is what Luther is getting at. Greed nowadays has come to be viewed as talented, smart, and careful stewardship. And as with greed, so sin in general is dressed up to look like virtue, not vice. Neither prince nor peasant, nobleman nor average citizen is, in any, is any longer considered greedy, but only upstanding. The common consensus being that the man who prudently provides for himself is a resourceful person who knows how to take care of himself. <laughs> I was leading a Bible study uh, now a number of years ago, but here in Birmingham, on the book of James in the office of a law firm. Uh, Twelve guys getting together to go through the book of James. And I still remember vividly the day that the discussion was that if you're poor, you're immoral. One man, one businessman in the group held the position that if you are poor, it is a sign of your immorality. You have not applied yourself. And there was absolutely no understanding of systemic poverty. The difficulty that some people have to rise out of the milieu of uh, of, of poverty. Um, and there was no persuading him otherwise. Uh, poverty was a sign of evil. If you were poor, it was an indictment against yourself. Luther goes on in number four. Um, you can tell I was sort of grabbed by Luther's sermon on this parable. Um, the same holds true for other sins. And he's just as important on this, I think. Pride is no longer pride or sin, but honor. The proud man is no longer deemed arrogant, but honorable. A commanding person, worthy of respect, a credit to his generation. Anger and envy are no longer that, or sin, but righteousness, zealousness, and virtue. We've flipped it, Luther's concerned. The man who storms, or is envious, or who loses his cool is now considered industrious with a passion for what is fair and justly angry when high-handed injustice is done to him. Thus, there are no sinners in the world. But God have mercy, the world is just full of holy people. 
In Seneca's words, when this happens, that vice is turned into virtue and honor, there's no longer is hope or a way out. Everything's lost. When greed is denominated as productiveness, arrogance, honor, anger, zeal, then we have to leave it unrebuked. In other words, there's nothing you can do. When you flipped it that way, how do you speak into it? I think Luther's frustrated here. Luther comments on how the rich man is described. It was not a sin for this rich man to clothe himself and to eat and drink. For God created clothing, food and drink, and says that it is a blessing from him. You see, it's not just the fact that he's got it wealth that's wrong. The one receives it, maybe use it in accord with his needs. But to be greedy is wrong and a sin. Christ clearly says there was a rich man. Now that word rich, this alludes to what I said earlier, is a very problematical word in many places of Holy Scripture. Abraham also is rich, but Scripture does not for this reason call him a rich man. But rich in Scripture means almost as much as... An unscrupulous shyster or wicked man is spoken in Isaiah. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. There the prophet takes rich and wicked as one and the same thing. His point is, Christ died and was buried as an evil doer, a rogue, a scoundrel, even though he has done no wrong to no one. Luther has the rich man say to himself about the poor man, if a man's poor... That's his curse. If rich, he's blessed. I'm rich, and therefore I'm blessed, and I've kept God's commandment. Lazarus, on the other hand, is poor, and that's because he's a sinner, and God has punished him. Beware of that kind of casting of the human situation. The rich man didn't really see Lazarus. That's part of the parable. Day in and day out, Lazarus sits by his gate. Ill and unable to move and dogs licking his sores. And that, Luther says, is an indictment against the rich man. He doesn't see him. And, you know, that in Luke is an expression that comes up several times. Um, when Jesus is uh, in, at dinner with Simon the Pharisee, and remember the woman comes in uh, very emotional and very grateful for what Jesus has done, and she is uh, wiping with tears. She's wiping his feet with her hair. And Jesus turns to Simon and says, do you see her? <laughs> there was nobody else to see. <laughs> and she had attracted all of the attention. But Simon will not look at her. Simon will not see her. Do you see this woman who is really grateful? And then... Again, when Jesus is uh, leaving the temple for the last time and he has leveled his uh, blistering temple sermon and he's walking out 
and the, the disciples look up and they draw attention to the beautiful stonework of the temple. I mean, you, it's almost comical, the, the dissidence right there between what Jesus has just done and the disciples praising the temple. And who does Jesus see? But the poor widow who puts in her two mites. They're looking at the buildings, and Jesus is looking at this poor widow. So, I mean, an angle here is who do you see? Do you have eyes to see those that are in need? Number seven, Snodgrass, uh, and Clyde Snodgrass has written a, a wonderful 600-page uh, comprehensive study of the parables. Uh, I'd commend it to you. Um, what the parable attacks is a particular kind of wealth, wealth that does not see poverty and suffering. It attacks the idea that possessions are for one's own use and that they are owned without responsibility to God and other people. The parable does not tell us how the wealthy are to assist the poor, but it insists that the poor are brothers and sisters of the wealthy and that the injustice of the juxtaposition of wealth and poverty cannot be tolerated. And you see this theme in the parable of the Good Samaritan, in the two debtors, in the parable of the sheep and goats. It's our lack of responsiveness that is at issue. Skip down to number 11. The parable has the feel of a dream. A good dream for Lazarus who wakes up in heaven as Abraham's guest of honor and a nightmare for the rich man who wakes up in the torment of hell. Do you ever have dreams like that? That's what I think is happening here. Um, In the dialogue that follows, Lazarus never says a word. And that's, you know, it is interesting. He is completely passive to the situation. Lazarus never speaks, never acts. All you do is see him. Transported from the gate with all of his agony to the very side of Abraham. In the dialogue that follows, Lazarus never says a word. He feels no anger, expresses no revenge. He's at peace, totally at rest, a picture of shalom, basking in the presence of Abraham. True to form, the rich man ignores him. Now, as he always has, he cannot bring himself to see Lazarus as anything other than a low-class lackey. Hell itself doesn't put a dent in his pride. He calls out, Father, Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire and the rich man is unable to grasp that Abraham and Lazarus are brothers in the Lord on equal footing. In spite, 12, in spite of the rich man's ingrained pride and class consciousness, Abraham responds gently and affectionately. My dear boy, he uses the same words that the father in the parable of the prodigal son used with the offended elder son. Abraham describes the new reality. First, the great reversal, the difference between how it was and how it should be. The tables of justice have turned. Now Lazarus receives good things, the rich man bad things. 
And second, a great chasm that has been set in place by God, preventing anyone to go from heaven to hell or from hell to heaven. This boundary is fixed in time and place and limits absolutely any sense of responsibility and compassion. What's done is done. There is a finality about the life we live on this side of eternity. Number 13, uh, a description by Daniel Yanklovich, a social analyst that to me describes the rich man in modern terms, our terms. I quote there, by concentrating day and night on your feelings, potentials, needs and wants and desires, and by learning to assert them more freely, you do not become freer, more spontaneous, more creative, a more creative self, you become narrower, more self-centered, more, isola more, more isolated one. You do not grow, you shrink. I think that's true. There's a sober side to this parable that if the Lord has blessed us with material wealth, that needs to be used for God's kingdom purposes. We can clothe ourselves, we can house ourselves, we can feed ourselves. But the limit to how selfish we are on that is the kingdom. So do we have a stewardship in the light of God's kingdom? Or is the stewardship in the light of what makes sense in our secular society? And I think that's... That's the tension that runs through this. And you can't evade the dollar signs on this parable. You can't spiritualize it. To make it spiritual is to make it material. There's a physical side to spirituality. There's a spiritual side to physicality. Jesus will not allow us to bifurcate this and spiritualize it. He insists on holding this all together. To know God is to be responsive to the needs of others. And a sign of God's grace is that graciousness that's extended to others. I'm speaking as much to myself as to anyone in this room. Uh, the sober meaningfulness of these parables really ought to penetrate us. One of my students said this week that uh, parables are time bombs that don't go off until they've penetrated the heart. I thought that was pretty brilliant. Time bombs that don't go off until they've penetrated the heart. And once that's happened, they have their rightful impact. Let's pray. Lord God, thanks for giving us the picture. By the Spirit of God, may these pictures, these visuals, truly be applied to how we live our life. Together we ask for your help. In the name of the Lord Jesus, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.